You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to this seminar, The Future of European Security and Defense Challenges and Pathways. Uh, if you're wondering why I'm talking in a microphone, it's because we're also trying to do a podcast uh, of this seminar that will be released afterwards, just so you know. But it won't affect your uh, questions and answers that will be beyond the pod, so it's only the for the speakers. Last year was a very dynamic year for European security, which of course culminated with the, the PESCO, the decision to establish the permanent and structured cooperation. And uh, we've heard many kind of citations of uh, Federica Mogherini saying that more has happened in the previous 10 months than in the previous 10 years. Uh, actually, last week I heard someone from the European Commission say that more happened in the last six months than in the preceding 60 years, which perhaps says more about the European Commission and their traditional involvement in this field. Um, but still, lots of things has been happening. And for several reasons. We have the Trump factor, we have several Brexit factors, both the UK not kind of using their veto anymore, but also the other countries need to find new energy and, and uh, for integration, and defense has been one such field. And there's, of course, the Russia factor. There's also EU factors. We have a new s strategy in place, the European Global Strategy, which kind of feeds momentum into this area. So today, the plan is to, to look ahead and considering all these factors that we've seen uh, during 2017, what kind of future can we envision for European security and defense? You could say we actually already started this yesterday with a seminar uh, about Trump, one of the kind of known unknowns of European security because we have a new publication that is just out. So if, you're, if you read Swedish, uh, please consider this new Supermacht på glid, which we released uh, just recently. Today, the focus is on two other kind of known unknowns, uh, one being the Franco-German relationship. Uh, what will it deliver when it comes to European security? And the other one is Brexit. What is the role of the UK post-Brexit in European security and also in international security? Uh, and to my help with these issues, we have two uh, absolutely not unknown experts in this field. Um, I have bios that I could read for the half of this seminar, which I won't. Uh, but we have Professor uh, Dr. Richard Whitman here from the UK. Uh, an associate fellow at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. Director of Global Europe Center and Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. And we have uh, Dr. Christian Mölling, Deputy Director at the Research Institute of the German Council of Foreign Relations, DJAP, our kind of sister organization. Uh, at least we would like to think that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and you're heading DJAP's work on security defense and defense industrial issues with a special focus on German security and defense policy. You've been in the German Marshall Fund and the SWP before that. So you're both very welcome. So thank you very much uh, for the invitation. Uh, it's, uh, it's very good to have the chance to travel outside the, the UK and take the temperature in other European states, particularly on the, the issue of Brexit. So I very much look forward to your uh, comments uh, on my remarks, and uh, and if anything I say sort of triggers uh, a belated reaction, then please feel free to to tweet me, uh, but not troll me. Uh, I hope. Um, I think it's sort of obligatory uh, when it comes to a Brit giving a presentation. I think, in fact, it's a contractual obligation that you always have to mention Winston Churchill. So I'll do it at the start and get it out of the way. And, and my favourite Churchill quote at the moment is that. 
if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, and for me, uh, that sort of sums up my feelings about uh, Brexit, uh, really, and, and where we find ourselves on the whole uh, Brexit front. But I want to, to focus in a little bit uh, and not talk about Brexit in general, but obviously for our purposes, we're thinking about uh, sort of future uh, foreign security policy relationship post uh, Brexit and and really my theme uh, is what I would call the search for for a, a European strategy or a new European strategy I think on the part of the UK but I think also for other member states and for the EU a sort of search for a new uh, UK uh, strategy and what I want to do to uh, to sort of work this through is talk a little bit about Brexit as a recalibration uh, exercise to think about uh, Brexit uh, through uh, sort of pre-Brexit where we are now through to Brexit and then some of the scenarios uh, for the situation we might find ourselves in uh, post-Brexit uh, uh, and uh, to focus a little bit on some of the ways in which uh, I hope I can provoke you to think about where the UK might actually find uh, itself and some of the ways in which it might uh, configure uh, its relationship in the future. So uh, what I'm going to say uh, is in large part sort of uh, a work of uh, speculation, but I hope reasonably well informed uh, speculation. So I look forward to your, uh, your reaction and your commentary. So if you think about where we are uh, at the moment, we are, I'd like to think we're in the uh, sort of at least in the eye of the storm, which suggests we're halfway through uh, Brexit. But uh, obviously, in the UK, there is a major order preoccupation with uh, Brexit uh, as uh, a process. Uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that the, the British debate uh, on Brexit is, is quite distinct from the debate in other uh, member state capitals for the obvious reasons in terms of uh, where uh, the UK uh, is going to end up and how the other member states consider life in the EU uh, without uh, the UK. And I think one of the problems for the UK is that by focusing on Brexit, and Brexit is obviously taking up a considerable amount of sort of political uh, bandwidth, it means that we uh, are still, uh, and, our, and the British government is still working through what the UK's broader European diplomatic strategy uh, is going to be post-Brexit, and in particular uh, how bilateral, uh, minilateral, uh, and multilateral relationships are going to be configured. Uh, in a way that, that gives the UK a sort of coherent uh, and uh, influential uh, approach towards diplomacy uh, and European security uh, post-Brexit. Uh, I think it's fair to assume for all of us that, uh, that come uh, Brexit, the UK will continue to uh, have an interest in and will seek to influence uh, EU agenda setting and EU policy development, not as a member, uh, of course, but uh, as an extremely uh, interested uh, third uh, party. And that's obviously going to be uh, on a very different basis uh, as a non-member state from the position that it finds itself uh, in now. And so for me, I think to, to think sort of seriously about the, the future uh, and what the future uh, EU uh, and EU member state and UK relationship might look like, there are three sort of scoping conditions that I think we have to, to bear in mind. The first is that Brexit itself um, is at least a decade-long uh, project. Uh, I don't necessarily mean the negotiations uh, or the ratification, but I mean really in terms of the broader uh, adjustment process. I mean, not least uh, the sort of political mindset uh, in the UK and, and quite possibly uh, the public, uh, the public mood, mood. We're very cleaved uh, society and polity uh, at the moment. 
Uh, and so there's a time scale issue in terms of uh, how long we're thinking about in terms of in terms of the future and what we might want to achieve uh, across the course of time and in that future. There's also, for me, the interesting question of the sort of success uh, or failure of Brexit. I think uh, it's fair to assume that, that most uh, people outside the UK assume that Brexit uh, is going to be a failure. Uh, measured in terms of the UK, will find itself worse off uh, from where it is now. But I think it's worth considering um, what if Brexit is a success. We can argue about what success looks like uh, economically, socially, politically, uh, and so on. But I, but I just put it out there that I think it's worth thinking about um, what kind of adjustment might need to be made uh, in, in people's minds uh, in other member states uh, uh, and obviously public policymakers, um, you know, what they would consider a successful Brexit to uh, look like and therefore uh, how they would adjust themselves uh, to uh, a successful Brexit. You may think it's a low probability event, but you know, I think it's worth thinking about. Uh, and the other, the other sort of uh, scoping uh, uh, issue, I think, to think about is UK domestic politics. I think um, uh, the question of EU, uh, the relationship with the EU, not necessarily EU membership, but the relationship with the EU, I think, is likely to be one of the key defining uh, issues for British uh, politics for the foreseeable uh, future. Not just a uh, contestation between political parties or positioning or jockeying, jockeying between political parties, but I think also it will be a key issue in relationships between the Westminster government uh, and the UK devolved administrations uh, and government, and I suspect there will also be a key issue within key constituencies uh, in the UK, uh, such as business uh, and so on. So uh, Brexiting doesn't mean uh, that the UK uh, is going to be able to uh, escape the EU, and the paradox, I think, of the whole Brexit process is that probably the UK public at large now understands much more about the EU than they did prior to the vote. Certainly the customs union or customs union membership was not a topic uh, that one would find a fan on the, on the tip of, uh, of most people's uh, tongues. But, you know, we, Brexit is obviously, uh, the Brexit vote is important, but uh, I think we also ref have to reflect on the fact that the UK has been engaged in a recalibration uh, process uh, in its relationship with the EU for a more uh, extended uh, period, and certainly of the Cameron led coalition uh, government uh, onwards, in that the, the, the UK had increasingly, I think, thought about uh, a strategy or an approach of, of decentering uh, the European Union. And you can see this, for example, reflected in the, uh, the uh, UK's uh, SDSR document from 2015 and so on. So, you know, Brexit is a rupture. Uh, it's a significant rupture, but there was already, I think, a sort of body uh, of uh, thought that there was a recalibration going on, which was uh, something that was primarily going on within uh, political parties, but certainly the last uh, two uh, governments uh, 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 before Mrs May's. I think it's certainly been doing some rethinking about how the UK uh, fit in, and particularly how the UK would fit into foreign security uh, and, uh, and defence policy uh, arrangements. Thinking about where, uh, uh, or thinking about post-Brexit uh, scenarios, we've obviously been massively preoccupied with the, the phase one uh, exit uh, agreement uh, negotiations as envisaged under Article uh, 50. And I think now we move into a different kind of preoccupation, which is already apparent in the UK, which is the, the content and duration of the, the transition or, or adjustment period uh, from between uh, the, uh, uh, the date of UK uh, exit next year through uh, to the period in which the, the UK finally detaches itself, if indeed it ever does uh, fully uh, detach itself uh, from uh, 
at a customs union uh, and uh, the single market. Therefore, I think that probably the UK is only just in the foothills of thinking about what it wants the longer term relationship uh, with uh, the EU to do. And the best uh, that we've got in terms of uh, the detail is to take a look at the Prime Minister's Lancaster House uh, and, uh, and Florence speeches where she set out her ambition or the government's ambition for a deep uh, and, uh, and special uh, partnership. Uh, and I want to focus on on the sort of foreign security and defence policy uh, aspects of that, because obviously that's uh, the focus for us here uh, this afternoon. Uh, if you look at the, the Florence speech, I think the Florence speech hasn't got anything like uh, the, uh, the commentary at airtime uh, that it deserves, because if you look at that speech, and if you look at the focus of that speech, you know, the substantive uh, part of that speech uh, is the Prime Minister's proposal for uh, a security uh, treaty. Uh, and then uh, if you, if you uh, take a look at the two partnership uh, papers the government's produced on uh, foreign policy, defence uh, and development, and on security, law enforcement and criminal justice, I think it's fair to say that the, the UK position on cooperation in these areas post-Brexit is basically to be more Catholic than the Pope, if I could put it that way, that the UK is basically seeking to have a relationship which is the same as, if not stronger, uh, even than the current uh, relationship uh, that uh, exists. Uh, which is which is setting the bar uh, very very uh, high, uh, and in a piece uh, for the uh, International Institute of Strategic Studies Journal Survival last month, I, I sort of uh, I've taken a look at this ambition. And I think it is uh, probably uh, um, uh, probably a difficult uh, ambition uh, to uh, to achieve, but I think a sort of important. Uh, piece of, uh, uh, of public diplomacy to have put the idea out there. One of the reasons why I think it's difficult to achieve is because the security treaty uh, imagines uh, or envisages uh, sort of bringing together or blending um, uh, security and defense policy cooperation with a national uh, internal security type arrangements. And the fact that those bridge all sorts of areas uh, that involve a European Court of Justice, uh, adjudication and so on, obviously involve Europol, uh, European arrest one, warrant um, information sharing through Schengen and so on, as well as a CFSP and CSDP uh, type uh, aspects. I think that presents uh, a, a formidable, uh, a formidable uh, package uh, to see through uh, in a single uh, single treaty. So my own view would be, you know, those things probably need to be uh, broken uh, up. But I think also when you think about the CFSP, uh, CSDP, future cooperation, there are a whole series of what we can call docking problems. You know, how does a member state, a non-member state rather, uh, dock uh, with uh, the other uh, member states through the current uh, institutional uh, order? And perhaps to introduce, introduce an element uh, of, uh, of sort of discordance, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure whether having sort of offered this security uh, treaty, the UK shouldn't have had a sort of broader discussion about whether it's actually in its own interest to offer something that generous or ambitious uh, at this stage. And perhaps it's, it's better for the UK to think a little bit more about uh, some things that it might not want to do or some things it might want to leave to the other member states to do, to do a bit of uh, free riding, uh, perhaps, uh, and to leave uh, some uh, security uh, issues to be addressed uh, by uh, the EU, perhaps while the UK focuses uh, in other areas. Um, uh, and also to consider whether, um, because the, the options in terms of future EU-UK relationship uh, in this area 
uh, may not be as attractive uh, as, as the UK uh, might hope, that there may be other ways of sinking to have influence uh, on uh, EU foreign security and defence policy from outside uh, in terms of other remote control or doubling down uh, 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 activity through NATO G7 uh, and so on. And by the way, uh, you know, we also, there is uh, a sort of debate uh, about whether, you know, sort of putting, going all in uh, for the EU in terms of security uh, treaty uh, is sensible for the UK when surely part of the sort of Brexit endeavour uh, was to open up uh, alternative opportunity in terms of collaboration, not just economically, but also in the security uh, field. And that includes uh, obviously the relationship with the US, but also the so-called Kanzuk relationship, which is Canada and New Zealand uh, and, uh, and the UK uh, coming uh, together, which does uh, have a sort of increasingly organized uh, advocacy uh, group uh, within uh, the UK. So thinking about, um, uh, thinking about just, the, uh, just the sort of foreign security, uh, foreign security and defense policy uh, aspects, um, there is the question not just of where we might end up, but the question of what happens during a transition period you know, after, uh, after uh, March uh, of next year and what kind of relationship may operate and how far that sees uh, the UK on a sort of glide path to a clearer uh, medium uh, or longer term relationship. And there are, uh, I think, broadly uh, three possible scenarios here. One uh, is what I call the reverse uh, uh, Denmark, which sounds like a very painful move, but is essentially the UK remains in uh, everything foreign and security uh, policy-wise. I mean, that you may think that that's an unrealistic uh, uh, ambition, um, but for, as I say, for the period of transition, the UK remains some kind of privileged partner. Uh, secondly, the move to what you might call an economy class uh, status. The UK moves from the front of the plane to the back in terms of the plugging in uh, to the existing security uh, and defence policy uh, uh, arrangements within the EU. It becomes a sort of normal uh, third country. Or there is uh, also uh, the prospect of a sort of hard Brexit uh, lockout scenario where the UK may have some kind of abrupt termination uh, of collaboration uh, with uh, the member states. So there's a set of issues about, uh, you know, sort of where the UK might want to end up. There's a set of issues around the transition process. Uh, and I think there's also uh, the question is what's, you know, the medium or long-term desirable uh, uh, outcome. Uh, and... Um, uh, my own view is that there obviously uh, it would be desirable to have some kind of uh, strategic uh, partnership in the sort of prime minister sense, which focuses on markets people uh, and uh, and also uh, security. But I think at the moment there might be greater grounds for for pessimism rather than optimism in terms of that being uh, achieved. Um, not least because uh, I'm not sure uh, that there is sort of sufficient creativity um, uh, around at the moment to think about. Um, how one might configure uh, an architecture that, that realizes that kind of uh, a, an ambition. And it may well be, you know, that the, that the, the challenge uh, that other member state governments see isn't the same challenge as the UK identify, which is other member states might think that they're dealing with a sort of Brexit sclerosis scenario where the UK is sort of uh, is, uh, preoccupied uh, uh, with political and, and economic challenges that come directly as a consequence uh, of, uh, of Brexit. Uh, but we, you know, if you were an optimist, you could say that there's a kind of Phoenix Britain scenario as well. You know, what happens if Britain um, uh, is able to offer a sort of low cost, 
have a low cost, relatively low cost uh, exit uh, and becomes a potential competitor model for other uh, European uh, states uh, to emulate. That's part of the problem with that scenario at the moment is the notion of global Britain, uh, which has been uh, articulated, uh, is really aspirational uh, rather than sort of um, brought into, uh, brought into to, uh, sharp relief. Uh, at the moment, because there are both software and hardware questions, I think, to resolve there. The software being, you know, what are the ideas that are going to run through the notion of global Britain, which I think are still being debated out. Uh, the hardware issue is really, you know, there's considerable diplomatic uh, hardware currently being uh, focused on uh, Brexit, and we've obviously gone through uh, a retooling uh, in terms of the civil service in the UK to facilitate um, Brexit negotiations. Uh, and, uh, and and when and how we're able to rele release resource uh, for something different uh, in uh, in the in the long term. So um, I want to do two more things uh, before I finish. One uh, is to is to just sort of posit that the obviously the foreign security and defence policy relationship between uh, the UK uh, and the EU uh, and other member states. Uh, is is inevitably going to be conditioned by what kind of relationship the UK has uh, with uh, the EU. And whatever uh, sort of deal that the UK strikes, whether it's a, a CETA or Canada, plus, 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 or a Norway, minus, minus, um, there are uh, some areas in which you will see a sort of shift in UK thinking about the broader integration uh, project. And I think that impinges on uh, the way that the UK might think about its foreign security uh, and defence policy uh, relationship. But I think a key concern for the UK in the foreign policy area, foreign security and defence policy area, is going to be you know, those uh, anxieties about duplication, decoupling uh, and, uh, and discrimination uh, as a member state. All of the moves that may be made in terms of uh, uh, broadening and deepening on the part of the member states, uh, uh, the UK's concerns are probably going to uh, remain uh, largely uh, the same. So just to, to draw things uh, uh, towards a bit of a conclusion, um, I focused uh, uh, primarily on uh, the sort of relationship between uh, the, uh, the EU uh, and the UK or prospective relationship uh, in broad terms. But I think there is also the issues to consider in terms of the relationship between the uh, UK uh, and uh, individual uh, member states. And the UK's uh, will inevitably uh, pursue a strategy where it seeks to both uh, offshore uh, influence, seek to have influence uh, on, uh, on EU policy making, but also I think uh, onshore uh, as well. You know, the distinctions uh, I've, uh, I've tried to draw here in terms of proxy uh, influence and potentially some kind of quasi uh, balancing role uh, in terms of uh, influence uh, on uh, policy making. But also, I think uh, a key part uh, of British strategy, and I think this is already uh, emergent, is going to be to, to build parallel uh, bilateral uh, privilege partnerships with uh, member states uh, outside uh, the EU uh, framework. The degree to which that's possible is obviously going to be dependent on what happens in terms of the sort of realisation uh, of the global strategy and projects such as PESCO and European Defence uh, Fund and so on, and the sort of capacity for identifying uh, niches uh, for uh, collaboration uh, that may not compromise uh, EU uh, arrangements. But 
I think the, the UK's uh, approach is likely to be one that uh, a colleague of mine in the past called, promi called promiscuous bilateralism, uh, in that uh, there, there, I think there will be difficulties that we can rehearse in discussion uh, in a sort of London, Paris, uh, Berlin uh, triangle uh, uh, outside uh, or uh, alongside uh, the EU. I think the London-Paris uh, uh, relationship uh, for all sorts of reasons in the foreign security and defense policy area, it's obviously likely to be easier, uh, as we saw uh, rehearsed at the, uh, the Sandhurst uh, summit within the last week. But I think it's also reasonable to assume uh, that uh, the UK is going to be enthusiastic about all sorts of bilateralisms uh, and, and mini-lateralisms. Uh, uh, mini, uh, and the challenge, in a way, uh, is to, uh, for the UK to make everybody feel special or everybody feel privileged when some people are clearly going to be more privileged uh, than uh, others, uh, and to work out one of going to be the most uh, useful uh, configurations for uh, the UK in terms of influence uh, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and foreign uh, security and defense policy is almost certainly going to be one of the most uh, attractive uh, and viable uh, routes uh, to do so. So where, uh, where might the sort of future relationship uh, between the EU uh, uh, and, the, uh, and the UK end up? Well, I think it's probably going to dance around uh, this particular, uh, uh, this particular uh, circle, that uh, there may be, and there certainly is a sort of imperative uh, or enthusiasm uh, uh, in London at the moment for integration, the degree to which the other uh, member states are enthusiastic for the same degree of integration, uh, I think we'll see uh, unfold uh, over uh, the next few months. Uh, the pushback might be to have some kind of sort of association uh, type uh, deal, uh, which obviously draws a distinction between uh, sort of full integration, full membership or not. But that may prove to be highly unattractive for the UK in terms of the capacity for uh, agenda setting uh, or for influence. So it may see the UK end up being uh, more detached or may see the member states in the EU more detached from the UK uh, than might either otherwise uh, be desirable um, because... Uh, the sort of difficulties of, of striking a sort of uh, a deal uh, that looks and, and feels sort of institutionally viable uh, may be the stumbling block. So I'll leave things there, if I may. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we soon are going to go over the word to the audience. I'm sure you have questions. Uh, but I have one first for you, Richard. Um, you had an interesting discussion about the, the pros and cons of uh, package deals. Um, and and what the UK could offer, and um, I mean something you hear frequently is uh, when you discuss the, the possible cost from the UK. Say, well, we always have NATO, um, but of course you don't have Sweden in NATO. So from a Swedish perspective, uh, we we spend a lot of money and resources into the EU framework, and we actually take the idea about the solidarity clause uh, quite seriously. We have a solidarity doctrine even. Uh, do you think the UK would be willing to reproduce some of the more strategic elements of its EU engagement, such as a solidarity pact of some sort after Brexit? Or would that be such an issue that uh, should come from the EU27 or as an offer from, from the EE, rather? I mean, I, I think, like many other people, I'm, I'm very interested to see what individual member states, but also what the EU comes up with in terms of a deal. And I think one of the striking things for me uh, about the uh, uh, the Prime Minister's uh, Florence uh, speech, and in particular, you know, the offer that she she made there was 
that there was a sort of deafening silence actually on the part of uh, other member states in terms of perhaps using that uh, uh, as a as a hook or as, as a thread uh, to uh, to pull on uh, and uh, and perhaps um, to think a little bit creatively about how the UK uh, might be uh, might be kept uh, on site. I mean, I think if you if you take the the government at its own words, I mean, both in the partnership papers and the prime minister's speech, then I think I mean the the UK appears to be offering a lot uh, in terms of um, the 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 vision that it has for uh, future uh, collaboration. So I don't think that anything uh, could or, or should be ruled out. But I think the stumbling block for me. Uh, is likely to be uh, a, a sort of the degree of creativity uh, when it comes to thinking about the, the sort of institutional docking uh, and the extent to which a deal can be offered to the UK uh, that, that takes into account the interests that the UK believes that it has in the, in the sort of European foreign uh, security and defence policy order. But at the same time, obviously, for the member states, it doesn't feel as if you're dealing with a backseat driver um, or the UK playing the role that some member states think that it has played in the recent past in terms of retarding the development of uh, particularly common common security and defense policy. Um, uh, and th I mean, there are already ideas out there in terms of, you know, where the UK might sit, how it might sit, the frequency with which it might sit in different, uh, you know, in different fora uh, with the member states. I think the way the easiest thing to do is to push information around. Uh, I mean, it's very, it's going to be very easy for the UK as it is for other third parties to find out what the EU is doing, or what the EU is thinking, or what the, you know, the EU is, um, uh, is, is sort of aiming at. But I think um, uh, there, is, there is also a danger that the, the UK just gets more attractive offers uh, from third countries. I mean, that's not a threat, but it's just that there is, you know, there look to be more interesting, more viable and more attractive options available. Um, and things that in a way uh, address uh, the, the question for the UK as to what, you know, sort of global Britain looks uh, looks and feels like. Um, so I think there's a lot to play for uh, in this area, uh, frankly. And I think the, the politics around foreign security and defense policy are nothing like the politics around the single market and the customs union. I think that's really, you know, an important, uh, an important point to stress that, you know, there, there aren't the same kinds of red lines or, or sort of political anxiety. And in fact, one of the things that, that unites sort of people who formerly uh, who in a, in a previous life campaigned for Brexit and those who campaigned for Remain is I think there's a, there's a great consensus certainly within Parliament uh, that this is, you know, there's something to be lost here and it would be good to, um, you know, think uh, creatively about it. And if there's a role, uh, I would say, for a country like Sweden, I think it's a sort of bridging role in a way to, uh, you know, to be looking at, um, you know, to be looking at uh, areas in which uh, it would be useful uh, and interesting and helpful to see the UK uh, plugged in, um, where the perspective might be different uh, from some other member states who may take a more theological view, shall we say, about the existing institutional order. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews.